Hello, I'm Nick Whitney and this is episode 7 of All You Need to Know About European History. It is entitled Enter the Ottomans. In the last episode, we covered some of the main developments that made the 14th century such a grim period in European history. The decline of the papacy and the lost decades it spent in Avignon, the Black Death, and the first half of the Hundred Years' War between England and France. But what we did not have time for was the crowning calamity of that dismal century. The shattering defeat inflicted on the combined armies of Western Europe at Nicopolis on the Lower Danube in 1396, by that new menace from the east, the Ottoman Empire. So we'll get on to that in just a moment. But first, I'm conscious that the last few episodes have been focused mainly on Western Europe and the Mediterranean, and that we therefore need to do a bit of backfilling about developments in Central and Eastern Europe. You may recall that in a rather broad-brush way, I described the first couple of centuries of the second millennium as representing a sort of turning of the tide. The Hungarians had turned out to be the last of the big migratory waves from the east that had washed over Europe to such devastating effect after the fall of the Roman Empire in the west. Meanwhile, the advance of Christianity, whether of the Roman or the Eastern Orthodox variety, into the Slavic lands to the east, exemplified and reinforced the growing confidence of Christendom. A much-needed stability was provided by the striking longevity of the first Christian dynasties in the New Kingdoms. The Premislids in Bohemia, the Piasts in Poland, and the Arpads in Hungary. Yet, in the 14th century, each of those dynasties died out, or perhaps more accurately, failed to produce male heirs, leading to significant reordering of the geopolitical pieces in Eastern Europe. The Holy Roman Empire, too, was undergoing major change. The death of Frederick II, you remember him, Stupor Mundi, the gobsmacker, in 1250 was followed by decades of dynastic confusion, with no one family able to establish an enduring grip on the imperial throne. Different emperors came and went, including a certain Rudolf I, chosen as an inoffensive compromise candidate from the then-obscure House of Habsburg. But not until 1312 did a new emperor, that was Henry, Count of Luxembourg, managed to establish himself sufficiently firmly to secure the full endorsement of a papal coronation. He failed to lock in the succession for his son John, but his grandson got it back in 1346 as Emperor Charles IV, inaugurating a century of almost unbroken imperial rule for the Luxembourg dynasty. After that, it would be back to the Habsburgs, uh, for good and all. Charles was a, a prime example of the typical cosmopolitan nobleman of the day. He spoke five languages, German, Czech, French, Latin and Italian. Italian was becoming a thing at this time, thanks not least to Dante, much as English was developing with the help of Chaucer. The Luxembourg family was linked by marriage to most of the European royal houses, so, like, say, the House of Anjou, they were always on the list when a royal dynasty ran out of male heirs and needed to import a new monarch. 
Thus, Charles's father John, though missing out on the imperial throne, had acquired the crown of Bohemia by marrying Elizabeth, last member of the royal Premisle dynasty. So Charles was born in Prague to a Czech mother and was actually christened Václav, Wenceslas. He became Charles only when his father John, enamoured of French culture, took up residence at the French court. John fell blind. But, as you may recall, that did not prevent him joining his son in the French ranks for the Battle of Crecy in 1346. John's death in that battle left son Charles, who was wounded but escaped, as King of Bohemia, to which title he added that of Emperor only a few months later. Given his upbringing and his new kingship, it was no surprise that Charles should choose to establish his court in Prague. The Black Death was a further powerful incentive. The pestilence would return to Western Europe half a dozen times in the latter 14th century, but the east of the continent somehow remained relatively unscathed. It was indeed in the peak plague year of 1348 that Charles sealed his choice of Prague as de facto capital of the empire by founding the Charles University, the first in Eastern Europe. The following three decades would constitute Prague's golden age as Charles created the stone dream that includes, of course, his eponymous bridge. Hungary too enjoyed a 14th century renaissance under an imported dynasty. Cast your mind back to Charles of Anjou, the man whose dreams of Mediterranean empire were shattered by the Sicilian Vespers. With Sicily gone, his son succeeded him as king of Naples and married a Hungarian princess of the Arpad dynasty, the linear descendants of King St. Stephen. When the Hungarian throne fell vacant with no male Arpad heir, she claimed it, was denied, and transferred her claim to her grandson Charles Robert. Helped by another royal death and papal backing, Charles Robert transferred to Pest and was invested with the Holy Crown of Stephen in 1310, and over the next three decades did a professional job of cementing the Hungarian hold over the Mid-Danube Basin. He also married a Polish princess, Elizabeth, sister of King Casimir the Great. Casimir's greatness lay in expanding his realms to the east so as to encompass much of eastern Ukraine, but not in securing the succession. When he died, without male heir, in 1370, the four-century-old Piast dynasty died with him. Louis, son of Charles Robert and Elizabeth and now King of Hungary, was invited to take the Polish crown as well. The fates of Hungary and Poland were not, however, to be long united. King Louis too had trouble with male heirs. On his death, his eldest daughter Mary was crowned Queen of Hungary and Croatia, but never enjoyed the nobles' confidence and support. So when Emperor-designate Sigismund, the son of Emperor Charles IV, invaded from Bohemia and demanded Mary's hand and the Hungarian crown, she was in no position to say no. Poland got Louis's second daughter, Jadwiga, crowned as king in Krakow in 1384. But, as with Mary, the men who mattered felt that stability required a strong husband. For Jadwiga, 
This was to be Jagiello, Grand Duke of Lithuania. For their marriage to take place, Jagiello had first to convert to Christianity. For the forests of Lithuania had sheltered the last European redoubt of the old paganism. They had also provided some protection from the ravages of the Teutonic Knights, which were a particular incentive for Poles and Lithuanians to make common cause. Accordingly, in 1387, the last of the sacred oaks in Vilnius was felled, Jagiello and Jadwiga were wed, and the two countries embarked on some four centuries of shared history. The new dynasty secured their position by routing the Teutonic Knights at the Battle of Grunwald in 1410, the largest realm in Christendom. Their territories would soon stretch from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Polish-Lithuanian Union, later Commonwealth, would insulate Western Europe from the growing power of Russia and prove a key ally for the Habsburgs in resisting the encroaching menace of those Ottoman Turks. Since the start of the millennium, Europe had, with the exception of brief Mongol eruptions, been largely free of external threat. The Hungarians had proved to be the last of the incoming waves of invaders to be absorbed, and from then on, Western Christendom had been on the front foot, evicting the Arabs from Spain and Sicily, pushing east into the Slavic lands of Eastern Europe, evangelising the Bolts at Sword Point, even establishing a 200-year presence in the Holy Land. Now, at the end of the 14th century, it found itself again exposed to invasion, and no longer by marauding hordes, but by a sophisticated hostile power. The threat would endure for more than three centuries, and twice see the Ottoman armies penetrating up the Danube Valley to the very gates of Vienna, whilst the Mediterranean again became a contested sea, with the Ottoman-sponsored North African pirates an enduring menace right through to the start of the 19th century, when they became an early battle honour for the US Marine Corps. Not that the Turks and their martial qualities were unknown to Europeans. The First Crusade, you may recall, was Western Christendom's response to the Byzantine Emperor's plea for help against the Seljuk Turks, who had seized Anatolia. Some two centuries later, around 1300, the Seljuks themselves were overcome by more recent Turkic arrivals, displaced out of Central Asia by Mongol invasions. These were the followers of Osman, founder of the Ottoman dynasty, which would endure for 600 years, and would, at the height of its power, under the 16th century Sultan Suleiman Magnificent, control an empire embracing the Middle East and Persia, the Balkans, and the Eastern Mediterranean. For most of this period, the Sultan also claimed the title of Caliph, successor of the Prophet, as leader of the Muslim world. They would become a remarkable civilization, with achievements in architecture and the decorative arts rivaling or exceeding anything to be found in contemporary Europe. But it wasn't all exquisite miniatures, poetry and rose gardens, and the pencil minarets that were the hallmark of the master architect Sinan. The temper of the dynasty can be read from its succession practices, which were essentially a fight to the death between the various sons, by his many wives, of the dead sultan. The victor would then cement his hold on power by strangling 
any surviving half-brothers, traditionally with a silken cord. Thereafter, a prompt and successful military campaign to expand the empire was expected, an expectation that no sultan who aimed to see old age could afford to ignore. The tottering Byzantine Empire was the most obvious target. Constantinople itself was initially too tough a nut, but in the latter half of the 14th century the Ottomans went round it to drive into the Balkans. They took Thessaloniki from Venice in 1387, and two years later inflicted a shattering, and it seems tragically unforgettable, defeat on the Serbs at the Battle of Kosovo-Polje, the Field of the Ravens. The Sultan lost his life at the hour of victory, when a band of Serbian knights managed to break through the circle of chained camels that protected him, but his son, Bayezid, moved quickly to secure his succession in the prescribed fashion by pushing on to conquer more of the Balkans and laying siege to Constantinople. At the cost of a brief digression, it may be worth noting that whilst the Ottomans found it rewarding to campaign against the derelict Byzantine Empire, they faced tougher challenges to their east, where they had to contend with Timur, a.k.a. Tamburlaine, an Islamized Mongol warlord. From his base in Samarkand, Timur dreamed of recreating the empire of Genghis Khan. He did pretty well, overrunning Central Asia and Persia, before descending into Mesopotamia and marking the fall of Baghdad by making a pyramid of the skulls of the 20,000 captives he had ordered decapitated. Pushing on into Anatolia, he defeated the Sultan Bayezid at the Battle of Ankara in 1402. Bayezid died in captivity. This took the Ottoman pressure off Constantinople for half a century. But Timur himself, after his initial victories over the Ottomans, turned back east to uh, see about restoring the Mongol Khanate in China. His successors maintained much of his empire, expanding it into India in the early 16th century and establishing the Mughal dynasty. But that is to run ahead. In the last years of the 14th century, Bayezid was driving through the Balkans and besieging Constantinople behind him. So it was only natural that the Byzantine emperor should send a desperate appeal to the Pope for a new crusade to rescue his capital from the infidel. But which Pope? The one in Rome or the one in Avignon? For we are now in the midst of the 40-year Western Schism, when Western Christendom contrived to split its loyalties between two Indeed, in the latter stages, three rival claimants to the apostolic succession. Avignon had been fun, but not much good for the church's standing. A succession of popes under the French king's thumb was not a good look for an institution claiming universal authority. And spiritual leadership was hard to maintain against a background of conspicuous luxury and the ruthless monetizing of all religious services and functions including the filling of some 700 Episcopal sees with their associated lands and privileges. It may not have been until 1517 that Martin Luther fired the recognised starting gun of the Protestant Reformation, but men like John Wycliffe in England were more than a century ahead of him in railing against the corruption of the Church and challenging the very need for this overweening hierarchy to act as intermediary between God and man. In the view of these radical reformers, the key to the individual's spiritual emancipation 
was that the scriptures should be directly available to him in a language he could understand. The exclusive use of Latin in religion was the key to the church's monopoly on access to God. This vision was made more plausible by the development of vernacular languages and spreading literacy. Sadly, there were still decades to wait for the invention of the printing press, but Wycliffe nonetheless produced a Middle English translation of the Bible in 1382. Wycliffe's teachings greatly influenced Jan Hus, the rector of Charles University in Prague, of whom more anon. And the urge for church reform was widely manifested across Europe in such movements as the Fraticelli, various sects of Franciscan friars who showed a tiresome attachment to St. Francis's original precepts, starting with poverty, despite the close attentions of the Inquisition. Against this background, Pope Gregory XI decided in 1377 to take the papacy back to Rome. He died the following year, giving France, with its allies in Castile and Naples, the chance to dispute the reversion to Rome, which the rest of Europe had accepted, and engineer the election of a rival pope back in Avignon. A split church, then, was in no position to organise a unified response by Christendom to the looming Ottoman menace, though the Roman pope did attempt to preach a new crusade in 1394, following the Ottoman seizure of the Bulgarians' main fortress on the lower Danube, Nicopolis. A more effective advocate of the need for action was... Sigismund of Hungary, the son of the Emperor Charles IV, who had married the heiress to the Hungarian throne and was manoeuvring to replace his useless brother as emperor-designate. Hungary was now on the front line. Sigismund's particular achievement was to enlist the Burgundians. This duchy had been awarded earlier in the century by the French king to a junior branch of his Valois dynasty and was embarked on the process of building itself into a semi-autonomous power between France and the Holy Roman Empire, expanding by marriage alliances both north into the Low Countries and south. Relations with the cousins in Paris would become strained. In coming years, the Burgundians would side with the English in the closing phases of the Hundred Years' War, selling them the captive Joan of Arc for burning. But at this particular juncture... Dijon and Paris egged each other on to undertake this new chivalric adventure to defend Christendom. A crusading army, made up mainly of components from France, Burgundy and various German princes, made its way to rendezvous with Hungarian forces at Buda in 1396. Forty Venetian ships also ferried a big contingent of Knights Hospitaller from Rhodes. The Ottomans were unable to oppose their passage through the Bosporus into the Black Sea and then on up the Danube to Nicopolis. Ambitions were high. There was talk of crushing the Ottomans, relieving Constantinople, even pressing on to recover the Holy Land. For his part, the Sultan Bayezid was advertising his intention to feed oats to his horses on the altar of St. Peter's. But amongst the Crusaders command and councils were, as usual, divided. The Hungarians, who had actually fought the Ottomans, urged caution, whilst the French and Burgundian knights insisted on immediately pressing forward to glory. What they encountered instead, outside the walls of Nicopolis, was catastrophe. Yet again, French chivalry discovered that heroism in combat 
could not compensate for arrogant neglect of the basics of military competence. Sigismund made his escape. A substantial cadre of Christian princes, including the Burgundian leader, the Duke's son, John of Nevers, were captured and made to watch the decapitation of thousands of their less valuable followers before being led off into captivity to exchange for eye-watering ransoms. The calamitous century had drawn to a suitably calamitous close. With two rival popes installed in Rome and Avignon, and the flower of European chivalry mowed down on the Danube, the condition of Christendom was left poised between tragedy and farce. The cardinals and princes eventually could bear no more, and summoned a general church council at Pisa in 1410, at which the rival popes were formally deposed and a new supreme pontiff elected in their steads. Which in practice meant that there were now not two popes, but three. Enough was enough. The third claimant, John XXIII, was induced by Sigismund as emperor-designate to summon Christendom's princes and prelates to a new ecumenical council to be held at Constance in 1414. The agenda was twofold, to sort out the papal succession mess for good and all, and to agree reforms, which could begin to restore the Church's soiled reputation and reconcile the disaffected Protestants, such as the Bohemian followers of Jan Hus. 18,000 clerics converged on the Bavarian lakeside city. The retinue and baggage of Pope John arrived on 1,600 horses. Inevitably, delegates were more than outnumbered by swarms of miscellaneous service providers, mainly moneylenders and prostitutes. Such a good time was had by all that the event lasted more than three years. John's strategy had been to secure his confirmation as the one true Pope by flooding the council with fellow Italians. But his opponents pushed through the procedural innovation that delegates should vote by nation. French, Italian, German and English. Interesting evidence of developing senses of national identity. Even in the German and Italian cases, centuries ahead of the political reality. The upshot was the deposition of all three claimants and the election of a more broadly acceptable Italian from the Roman Colonna family as Martin V. The issue of church reform was addressed with less enthusiasm. After all, people like Jan Hus, with his attacks on the perquisites of the clergy and the monetization of access to God, were threatening the church's entire business model. So Hus was summoned to Constance to explain himself, under Sigismund's safe conduct, and was tried, condemned as a heretic, and burned at the stake. Obviously, safe conducts could not apply to heretics. This did not go down well in Bohemia. Hussites marked their displeasure with widespread revolt and the defenestration of seven members of the Prague City Council into Charles Square. As the Czech-born playwright Tom Stoppard has reflected, it is remarkable that this particular act should have its own word. Why not de-escalate for pushing down stairs or influence for shoving up chimneys? But in fairness, the Bohemians made something of a regular practice of it. Other unpopular local officials went out of the window later in the century 
whilst the official second defenestration was the ejection of imperial emissaries in 1618, which precipitated the Thirty Years' War. This first defenestration, however, sparked some 15 years of Hussite wars, during which Pope and Emperor launched five official crusades, but found themselves repeatedly stymied by the clever Hussite tactics. These included fleets of war wagons that could be formed into instant fortifications to defeat cavalry attack, and the introduction of the first handguns, miniature man-portable cannons. In the end, the Hussites settled for formal recognition of Catholic authority in exchange for de facto freedom of religious practice. But in its refusal to address legitimate grievance, to contemplate meaningful reform, or to respond to popular challenge other than with brute force, the Church had in effect laid the powder trail that, two centuries later, would explode in the Thirty Years' War. Not everyone, however, who came to Constance was content with theological debate, power politics, and the various forms of entertainment on offer. Poggio Bracolini was a Florentine clerk who came to the council in the retinue of Pope John, but found himself out of a job when his master was deposed. He seized the opportunity to indulge his real passion, book hunting. Plutarch had led the way in showing what treasures of ancient literature, in his case Livy's history and Cicero's letters, awaited rediscovery in the libraries of Europe, especially those of less frequented monasteries. Southern Germany and Switzerland were still largely virgin territory in this regard. Poggio took off, and somewhere, perhaps in the ancient abbey of Fulda, he found himself looking at a manuscript of the famous lost masterwork of the Roman poet and philosopher Lucretius, the De Rerum Natura. The work itself, with its conception of the universe and everything within it as random amalgamations of atomic particles, its rejection of gods and any afterlife, and its advocacy of the Epicurean philosophy of quietude as the rational man's response, made a wide and early impact. More than fifty copies from the 15th century survive today. Poggio's discovery was thus both an important contribution to, and striking exemplar of, the unfolding of the next great stage in Europe's evolution, the Renaissance. And that is where we shall turn in the next episode.